0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at DeRoshi-Meyer.org We're in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 7. I'm going to Read a number of other texts to set a stage, and then I will move directly into uh, reciting verse 7 through 18. Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. There is none holy like Yahweh, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Behold, the nations are like a drop. From a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Then I looked. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of Jerusalem! For the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities. And against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy are You, Lord God of armies. The whole earth is filled with Your glory. Yet so few see it. So few savor it. And far too often we miss it ourselves. We want to give Godward reverence to the one who alone is due our lives. So move us more into the right place today. Help us take sin seriously and savor our only Savior. Help us to stand in awe, not complacently, not apathetically, acting as though you will not do good nor ill. No, you are a God who will bless and who will curse, and the day of your wrath is at hand. I pray that you would ignite fire in our souls to see the nations celebrate your goodness before your wrath is poured out. All eyes will see and behold the beauty of the Lord. Some invited into an eternity of mercy, and some destined for a fiery punishment that will not end. Help us take seriously your word today. Through Jesus I ask. Amen. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 6. Like a courier running into a room filled with the king's enemies and saying, The king has come. What we hear from this prophet is, Be silent. Silence. May a reverent hush fall on everyone who hears this voice, because the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord. What what comes to mind? What do you know about this day? His returning. So, it's about the intrusion... Of the sovereign of the universe into space and time. What will he do when he returns? What's the imagery? The day of the Lord. A day of reckoning. Wherein he will reckon what? Reckon whom? Okay, he's going to distinguish between some who are called sheep and some who are called goats. All right? He's going to put things into the balance, and those who have honored him will enjoy his presence forever, and those who have not, judgment. Here's how Paul words it in Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to His works. Not on the basis of their works, but in accordance with them. He will look for fruit. Not perfect fruit, but true fruit. He will render to each one according to His works. Now listen. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, those are the ones He will give eternal life. To those who by patience... In well-doing. This isn't perfection overnight. This is a true, though, orientation toward God. A redirection that is about progression over a lifetime. To those who by patience in well-doing seek glory. Seek for honor. Seek for immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, you can seek for glory and honor and immortality and not be self-seeking. To those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Romans 2, 6-8. through The day of the Lord is at hand. A day when the great king will finally come. In the days of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, those days were the days of King Alexander. Alexander the Great. How many have heard of him? Okay. Alexander the Great, and he was expanding Greek language and culture all over the world. It was the days of the Greeks. Before he would show up, he would send a messenger. It's the same word that we read throughout the Greek Old Testament and in the New Testament for preacher, a kerux. And they would preach the terms of peace. The day of the Lord was at hand. And before the day would come, he would send the preacher, Alexander would, to each town. Before his armies would show up, the messenger would arrive and say, the great day of the Lord is at hand. King Alexander is coming. Here's the terms of peace. Surrender or die. He is great and you don't want to mess with him. You cannot stand against his armies. His wrath is certain for every rebel. But he is willing to grant you peace. Reconciliation. This is the language that we find in these Greek historical texts. The day of the Lord is at hand. And before that day, God sent a preacher. His name was Yahweh has hidden Zephaniah. He sent a preacher to proclaim the terms of peace. Be silent before the Lord God. The great day of the Lord is near. For those who are willing to settle their hearts and quiet themselves in the wake of the coming King. The implication is there might be hope. Up till this point, we haven't heard about any hope in the book. Except for the fact that sinners are hearing that the day of the Lord is coming. Sinners are now being called upon. Silence! Silence! Stop talking and start listening. Stop living for yourself and humble yourself. The King is coming in His Wrath is serious against sin. Why? Because holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. But like Zephaniah's day, so too in our day, sin is taken very lightly. Especially in areas like ours where there's levels, higher levels of religious freedom. I'll tell you, many of our global partners are in areas where sin among Christians is recognized it can't be taken lightly life and death is at stake and if they look like the world they know that it is about compromise and probably in a nearer future than any of us anticipated in 10 years ago we ourselves will begin to feel the heat, and the church will begin to separate. Already, visibly, we'll be able to identify more clearly than we can now, sheep and goats, even before the day of the Lord comes. And it may not be as easy. Let's look at this text further. The day of the Lord. The Bible is filled with this imagery, and one of the most graphic day of the Lord chapters in all the Bible is this one. Many people read this chapter. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord, bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. That sounds pretty bad. And so people have characterized this entire book. Oh, Zephaniah, he's about the day of the Lord. But chapter 1... Only provides a context for the summons to the the Savior's summons to satisfaction that's to follow. It's setting a context for that summons, setting that there is no movement toward finding our hearts satisfied, toward finding ourselves protected on the day, unless we first revere the God who is holy. Take seriously sin. So the day of the Lord. He's coming as a warrior. In chapter 3, he's actually going to be tagged that. He's called the king in verse 15. And then he is called the mighty one or the warrior who will save in verse 17. The question is, when the warrior shows up, will you be among the slaughtered or the saved? Will you be the sacrifice or will there be a substitute that will have already died in your place? The day of the Lord is near, says verse 7. For Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. There's actually that word for in front of the Lord in verse 7. But it, it's so, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. There's something about the nearness that is grounded in the fact that the sacrifice is already prepared. Now, the sacrifice is what is, is how the day of the Lord is being described. It's, it's a fascinating image. Somebody look up for me, Jeremiah 46:10. and then somebody look up Revelation 19:17. Who's got Jeremiah 46:10? Thank you, John. And Revelation 19: 17 through19. Who will read that for us, good and loud? Thank you. OK. Just listen, this is Day of the Lord in other texts that are using sacrifice language to describe warfare. It's not what I would usually put together. Think of a sacrifice and think of warfare. But that's how God talks. So how about Jeremiah 46.10? God will bring a day of the Lord on Babylon. That's that text. And it's described the day of battle with sword in hand and massive slaughter is described as a sacrifice. That's the language of atonement. Where God the king comes down and destroys rebels in order to bring the world's to bring the world back into righteousness, right order. Right now the world is filled with God hostility. But the day is coming where He will reestablish Sabbath rest on a global scale. Where He will be seated on the throne like He was on the seventh day at creation. And He will be at rest. Not in a rest of laziness, in a rest of sovereignty. Where He is on the throne and everything, everything. Every man, woman, boy and girl. Every animal, every tree, every insect, every sunset will be in submission to the great King. Everything. Everything will be at peace with God. And he is working toward that end. And atonement is at-one-ment. It's where he reestablishes right order. Now most of us think of atonement as something that's only happening through substitution. But at one atonement is also realized not only when the substitute gets punished, but when the sinner gets punished. God's wrath is abated and order is reestablished. And so the day of the Lord will bring right order. And it will come through sacrifice of the sinner. How about this one? Revelation 19, pointing, pointing ahead to a day that's still future for the majority of the world. Revelation 19, 17 through 19. Good and loud. Then I saw an angel. Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captives, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. God's going to make a massive banqueting table for the beasts of the world. That's what sacrifice was. It was the opportunity to come in ancient Israel and enjoy the king's table. The fellowship offering was actually more like a potluck. People would bring their substitute, offer it on the altar, and then God would turn it around and let them sit at His table in His presence and enjoy... The food, together, in the presence of the great king. Punishment is sacrifice. And it will either be poured out on the sinner or on a substitute. The sacrifice will come nonetheless. How about this phrase that says... The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. In the Hebrew text, there's actually no, no little and there. It just, He has consecrated His guests, which I think means, explains the previous clause. He's prepared a sacrifice. He has readied, that is made holy, the guests. Now, It's possible that these are the guests who will actually eat of the sacrifice, but I think that the guests are actually the ones who are being sacrificed. And God has already determined, He's already prepared it. We just don't know who those peoples are. Somebody read for me, Jeremiah 12, verse 3. You'll see the language of the the sacrificial victim is the one who is consecrated as a guest of God. Not to enjoy the food with him, but invited to the table, the called one, invited to become the sacrifice. Jeremiah 12, verse 3. Somebody read that for me. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Hold them out like sheep for the slaughter. Set them apart for the day of the slaughter. You know the enemy, O God. Set them apart. That's the word for consecration here. Set them apart as sheep for the slaughter. Consecrate these sheep. This is graphic imagery. In verse 8 and then in verse 12 there's a little introductory word that suggests there's two groups that are going to be paralleled side by side. He's going to unpack who the guests are, that is, who the sacrificial victims will be, specifically from Jerusalem. So, you'll remember last week, we looked at verses 2 and 3, which were broad. They covered the entire world. God's punishment is coming on the entire world. Then in verses 4 through 6, He narrowed in on Jerusalem. Now, in the second half... He actually starts with Jerusalem, a specific focus on God's coming day of the Lord. And then in verses 14 through 18, he broadens out to cover the world. So it's like A, B, B, A. That's the the system. So Jerusalem, in this whole chapter, is surrounded by the world. Jerusalem's in the middle, and then the world is focused on the other side. So I think the point is, Jerusalem, if you think you can get out of this, punishment is surrounding you. So verse eight, verses eight through eleven focus on one group that's going to be punished in Jerusalem, and then verses 12 and through 13 focus on the second group that's going to be punished. Let's see if we can figure out who they are. Who do you see first off in verse 8? Who's in the focus? Put it in your own words. Who are they? People in authority. People in authority. The nobles. nobles. So, king's sons. That means that we have, I mean, right in the royal house, who's the king? Verse 1. Who's the king? Josiah. Northern king or southern king? Southern, southern king. So that means, who, he, who is he a descendant of? David. David. He's in the line of David in the south there were 20 kings in the divided kingdom, all of them from one dynasty. All of them from David's dynasty. This is the the line through which all the hope of the world is resting. It's through David that the Messiah was to rise. Josiah himself is a Godward man. He's one of the only two out of all 20 that is given a positive stamp of approval in the book of Kings. But this... This king has kids, and they themselves are helping to facilitate wickedness in the land. God's going to punish the king's sons. So, the king's sons are a problem, and then the other group, the officials. This broad, broad term for administrators and commanders, like army commanders and mayors and governors. So this this leadership is messed up. Just turn with me over to chapter 3, verse 3, you see the same word show up. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. They're like wild beasts that feast specifically on the less fortunate. There's some kind of self exalting arrogance that's resulting in pushing down everyone around them. And it's intriguing because most prophets don't know what's going on in the inner court. But Zephaniah is a son of Hezekiah. He's a descendant of the royal line, and and he has a knowledge of what's going on at the government level that most people don't, don't know about. And he's calling it out. That's what a prophet, that's why he was called a seer. He's not only able to see things into the future that no one else could see, he could look into the present and see things that no one else could see. He could look into the human heart and see wickedness, see sin, see deceit, see fraud. He could just call it out. He had eyes to see. God's the one who gave him that. So you've got the political leaders. Now look at, oh, and then it says, all who array themselves in foreign attire. Do you think God doesn't, he's, he's got a beef if, if we, you know, put on an Egyptian shirt or some Indian hat during missions week? We should think about this. I mean, next week, usually what happens is the sanctuary gets filled with colors, right? I will judge everyone who's dressed in foreign attire. What's going on here? Making alliances. Making alliances? What are we talking about? What's really at stake here? Adopting foreign practices. It's not the clothes. It's what the clothes represented for Jerusalem. Right? There's, there's this negative influence that was being signaled by what they were wearing. And God had said, don't have anything to do with them. He didn't have any problem with internationals. He had a problem with other faiths. How about verse 9? So this would be, I will punish the officials and the king's sons, those who array themselves in foreign attire. So the elite people are the ones who are being overcome by foreign influence. Rather than leading the people and being stable in God's ways, they're they're being overcome. Verse 9. There is an and at the front end of verse 9. So this, I believe, is the second group. I'll punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. What's a threshold? Pardon? A doorway. Where do we, though, in the Bible, read about thresholds? There's one specific place that we read about them most often. Pardon? Passover. okay, that, that would be, a, it doesn't actually mention the threshold there, but the door frames. Different context, Threshold a gate, okay? Threshold in the temple. That's where we hear about it most often. Now, we don't know what this whole deal is with leaping over the threshold. There's only one place in the Bible where we hear anything even like this. Anybody know where it is? 1 Samuel 5. Yeah, you, did you look at your little uh, footnote there? Well done. Okay, that's what they're there that's what they're there for. So In 1 Samuel 5.5, remember, the Ark had been stolen. The Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God, had been stolen by the Philistines. And they brought it back in, I think it was in Ashdod or Ashkelon, uh, one of those two A Philistine cities. And they put it into the temple of Dagon, who was the god of grain, the chief god of the Philistines. And Dagon fell over right in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So they set him back up, you know it's too bad their idol fell over. So then he fell over again. The language is exactly the same phrase that's used of Goliath before David later in the book. Exactly the same phrase. So then they set him up again and on the third time he fell down and he was shattered in pieces before the ark of God. And to this day it says the Philistine priest jump over the threshold for some rabbit foot type reason. It's off grounds because Dagon the idol touched that threshold. Well, whether that, I mean, there's no direct connection that we know of between what was going on in Philistia a couple hundred years before this event, but maybe it's some kind of superstitious activity. Regardless, I think it's most likely dealing with the temple. And again, focusing on leaders, but of a different kind. You have the political, military leaders, and the royal court in verse 8, and now in verse 9, a different kind of leadership that would have access to the temple. Everyone who leaps over the threshold, and then there's again no and, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Now, masters, we might automatically think male servants and female servants, but if we're talking about the temple, who's the master? Yahweh. I think this is probably a shorthand term, but they're not ultimately worshipping Yahweh. They're swearing in the name of the Lord, and yet swearing by other kings. And yet their master is supposed to be Yahweh, and yet... They're turning his house into a place of fraud, into a place of abuse. Well, you touched on the threshold being of superstition, and is that symbolic? Then it appears to be symbolic of superstitious, right? If that's the case, that's the 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 only. Hint we have in scripture is First Samuel five, which is, seems to be a superstition issue. So this seems most likely to be a superstition issue. Came does seem to be, and it's just curious. I mean, that's a very heavy symbol of God, superstition. Well, it seems like there's a simple, just the image itself way of looking at this. Um, anyone who leaps over the threshold, talking going into the temple, that's not a worshipful. Thing. way to go into the temple. If you're leaping over, Mm -hmm. there's subterfuge there somewhere Mm -hmm. and and it's bringing violence and fraud. I mean, I think it's the uh, image of of, of someone just for wrong purpose entering the temple and Mm -hmm. uh, violating the spirit of worship. What is violence and fraud? I mean, just unpack that. It implies something. The fraud part, especially. Violence could be done just against a temple, but where's the fraud part come in? Theft, deception against people. There's, there's others who are being pushed down in the context of what's going on here. Hear, hear God's statement of result. Very good. On that day, this is the result. This is what's going to come about from it. The... Accusers have been identified. Here's how God will punish them. At that day, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. These are all specific places in Jerusalem that everyone here would have understood that we don't understand. We do know that their location is likely north of the Temple Mount, which could mean if that's where the crashing is happening, that's where the wails are coming from, The fish gate is the furthest northern gate in Jerusalem. The second quarter was the precinct just north of the temple where the priests often lived. And if the whales are coming from that side, what might the implication be as this judgment oracle is being played out? The destruction of the temple from which direction? From the north, which is exactly where the Babylonians come from. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. We don't quite know where that is, but notice what comes next: for all the traders are no more; all who weigh out silver are cut off. The word for traders is actually the term for Canaanites. It's a tagline for the Philistines, even later in the book, which is another uh, picture of that foreign influence coming in and. God is just going to wipe them all out. The fact that it it says all who weigh out silver, it it may even suggest where some of the fraud was happening. That that there's a mismeasurement of scales going on and there's lower people who are being oppressed. God detests that. Now we come to the second group. So the first group dealt with political and religious elite. Second group, let's see if we can identify them. They're in verse 12. Who do you see? Okay, nominal. Your, your word was believers. But they are living in Jerusalem, and they're part of the covenant community. So they're in a community that is supposed to be Godward and marked by Yahweh alone. And yet, they have a disposition. What are they, what are they saying? What's their identifying mark as complacent folk? He won't do anything, whether good or bad. So when, I, when you see good or bad, think blessing or curse. I think that's, that's what we're supposed to image. This covenant God is so distant. So what would we call that as a worldview designation? A deist. He created everything. But he is not present in space and time. And I can live how I will. There's no use to pursue righteousness intensely. To, how does Jesus word it? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek it first. I don't need to. What's the point? There's no benefit. That's one side. The other side, I can live like the devil and God isn't going to do a diddly. And many people in the church. The world definitely is there. Not taking seriously the holiness of God. Not considering the significance of a coming day of the Lord. But how quickly even we can, can grow callous. Lukewarm. Complacent. I... I my neediness isn't great enough. I really don't have time to read my Bible today. The the, the the good isn't good enough to make me really long to hunger and thirst for righteousness that I might be filled. I mean... God isn't going to ultimately satisfy. He hasn't yet. My life is filled with pain. And we can grow callous so quickly. Well, if we step back in the sense of, um, like, Israel's mission, is that, is that how you're thinking? Okay, flesh out on the personal level, where, where are you seeing the un- unwillingness to engage culture? You mean like to confront to confront the culture? Yeah, it's up to God. He's not doing it. He's not doing good. He's not doing ill. He's distant. Why should I therefore not engage? Why should I be an agent of God? Okay. And and what's intriguing here is the the presence of complacency hasn't resulted in a context that is also um, at ease and unchanging. The presence of complacency has actually resulted in worldliness. Do, do you see? It? When, when, when they're doing nothing, the devil is doing much. So that, that mindfulness of engagement and, and a direct affront, that's what Zephaniah is doing. He's coming in and being a voice for change on the front end of what will be a massive restoration, one of the the greatest revivals that the Old Testament details, happens during the days of Josiah. A revival that just spreads out across the entire land. Because people were willing to pause and say, sin is serious. What I look at is serious. What I listen to is serious. How I spend my money is serious. How I spend my time is serious. I can't live, very literally, you can see this in the ESV, the word isn't complacent. It says, um, like wine on the dregs that's sitting there too long. Like it's supposed to be being used for benefit, and yet it's been sitting and now it's, it's getting rotten. And so I think it's, it's correct. They're... they're it's interpreted as they're just sitting there. They're doing nothing. Not good. Not ill. They're complacent as if God's not going to do respond in any way. Stephen. Can you remind me, has that revival occurred yet? We don't know. And I still don't know. If this is at the front end or in the midst of the revival, we don't have enough historical facts. So, but I can say that it, the exact same things that he's addressing, using the exact same words of confrontation, are what we read in in Josiah's reform, what he was about in Second Kings uh, 23 and 24. What he's engaged in is the eradication of exactly what Zephaniah is talking about. So, It is either just before Josiah kicks in his revival, or it's on the front end, even perhaps in the first year after Deuteronomy was found. Josiah had started stuff eight years before the book of the law was found in the temple. But then it was the book of the law and the reading of the blessings and the curses, the goods and the ills, that sparked this movement in the king to act. Look what God says the result will be. Verse 13, their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. This is, if you remember the blessings that God promised Israel in Deuteronomy, you're going to go in to Canaan and you're going to be in houses that you did not build. You'll drink from vineyards that you did not plant. And now it's like the reversal. They're in the land, and yet they're going to have done to them what was supposed to be done to the Canaanites. They're becoming like Canaan. And I remind you, that's the same word that was used of the traitors in verse 11. When you read verse 12, what does does it mean? Bring to mind what, what what's what's the imagery that's being used when it says at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men, the people. Pardon? Passover, Passover. okay. Comparable imagery to God's judgment coming at night. If God's coming with lamps, what does it suggest? It's dark. And you might not expect Him, but then the final implication, He'll find you. Because He has the light. And it will shine. Remember in John chapter 3, how the Gospel writer presents it? Right after the for God so loved the world part, it says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. Yet God's going to enter into the darkness where everyone is running, hiding and He will shine the light upon it and none of us will be able to hide. And what's amazing in that story is that the Philistines woke up before Israel ever did. And they started to, to I mean, it specifically says by the Philistines' words, Give glory to Yahweh, lest, in order that his, his strong hand, the same strong hand that He had brought on the Egyptians might be put away from us. And God pulls it away. And then Israel, after that, only after that, recognizes the significance of the holiness of God. Somebody read for me First Thessalonians five, two through five. First, who will take that one? First Thessalonians five, two through five. Thank you. Second Peter three ten, thank you. And Revelation three, 3. 1 Thessalonians five two through five. For you yourselves know, full oh well, that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they were saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pains upon a woman in and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the Lord should overtake you like a thief. Mm. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. 1 Peter, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth will, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Every day of the Lord intrusion, God's bringing down Assyria, God's destroying Jerusalem under the power of Babylon, God's later destruction of Babylon, and ultimately. His destruction of all evil in this world, which Revelation displays as Babylon, the same spirit of Babel. It's the same exact word of the Tower of Babel. That self-exalting pride that stands against God is characteristic of all the world, and God brings it down. And every intrusion of the day of the Lord, the judge comes in, the future judgment enters into the present. Every one of them was thought, could this be the final definitive day? But then time passes, and it's recognized, no, there's still more to come. Which means, if you're alive and breathing, there's opportunity right now for you to surrender. For you to embrace the King as your Savior, your Sovereign, your Satisfier. He's here, will you come? Revelation 3.3 3. Remember, then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come against you. Wake up. Don't let yourself sit in sin. That's the message of this chapter. Don't let yourself s- sit in sin. Be silent before the Lord God. Not living your own way, but surrendering deeply in your soul to the living, holy God who is over all things and will return in space and time. Something that we will unpack further is this element of the text. Peter said, every prophet from Samuel until now has proclaimed the glories of these days. Christ's suffering... And the global mission that has sprung from it. A mission to proclaim terms of peace during the year of the Lord's favor as we await the day of the vengeance of our God. The year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus inaugurated in His ministry. As we await the day of the vengeance of our God. In this season, we have good news to proclaim. Words of peace Words of happiness. Our God reigns. That's good news if you're on His side. And this text, as we're going to see at a number of key points, and I'll bring this out further next week, anticipates that there's only one way. Only one way. For us not to be the ones who experience the fire of God. His fire will come and the sacrifice will be burned totally will be against all who for whom it hasn't already happened at the cross the day of the lord intrudes into space and time the day of god's wrath that is awaiting all who are hostile to god and against god it actually comes into the present and hits Christ on the cross, the flames of God pouring onto Him, all the while protecting us from His heat while He looks us in the eyes and says, forgiven. The day of the Lord has come already, and I'm going to unpack next week How we can see that. How the New Testament wants us to see the cross as the intrusion of the future day of the Lord on behalf of all who believe in Jesus. And what that means is that in this book, everything that's anticipated to come after the day of the Lord, new creation, has already dawned. Already. For us. Let's pray. Father, we were reminded today of your love for the nations. It's a love that is real, that is intense, and that declares, whoever shall believe in Christ shall not perish but have everlasting life. A love for the entire world, and yet the reality is that some will perish still. I pray it would be none in this room. I pray that you would ignite within us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. That we would not be those who are complacent saying you will not do good nor will you do ill. But will be those who are confident that you are a God who is faithful to your word both to bless and to curse. And may we in Jesus embrace all the blessings. Every promise, yes, in Jesus. That's what I'm praying for today. And not only that, that we would be those that are awakened in our being like Zephaniah to proclaim, be silent before the day of the Lord. Be silent for the great King is at hand. Will you surrender before you have to die? I thank you that peace has come, that reconciliation is possible. Help us take seriously the fires of your glory. Through Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.